This episode may contain spoilers and covers topics that some may find graphic or triggering. Please use discretion when listening. Hey everyone, I'm Lex. And I'm Bree. And this is What the Fantasy, an otherworldly podcast. We are two 20-somethings living vicariously through our favorite fantasy characters, adventures, and romance tropes. In each episode, we will escape to other worlds by discussing our favorite fantasy books, shows, games, and movies. So sit back and let the adventure begin. Hey guys, it's your host Lex. Just wanted to throw in a little disclaimer before we jump into episode two. You'll hear Bree and I say a lot in this episode. He did a really good job of XYZ. And listening back, we know how stupid that sounds because obviously Guillermo del Toro is good at what he does. So just wanted to throw out that little disclaimer and appreciate you guys bearing with us as we navigate the podcast waters here. Uh, Now enjoy the show. Hey Lex, how's it going? It's going well. It's been a minute. It has been like three full months of minutes. (laughs) Yeah, we are actually almost exactly three months from the day that we recorded our last episode. (laughs) Things are going well. Yeah, it's off to a really strong start, but we're back and that's what's important. And we'll never leave you like this again, even though you you haven't even listened to episode one. Yeah, now (laughs) you won't even have to worry about it because we won't leave you again. Um, so what's been going on with you? Tax season's over. Tax season's over. I feel like a new woman. I have freedom again. So that's <laughs> been something I've been trying to get used to for the last week. And sleep and, and a regular sleep. like eating schedule probably. Yeah. I feel like I've eaten more vegetables in the last seven days than I have probably in the last three months. Good. So that probably says something. <laughs> All right. And what's on the current reading list? Um, so during tax season, I read Crescent City 1. And absolutely loved it. I think that out of all of SJM's books, because, you know, I've read um, all three of them at this point, all Mm -hmm. three series. I think that this is my favorite world building that she's done. Like, it was my... I don't know. I just loved the world building. Like, the characters were fine. I literally started it on Sunday. I think it was... Yeah, I started it on Sunday and literally read to page 10. But so far, I like it. And I was expecting, like... What, I, I had never read the I haven't read uh, Throne of Glass yet, but when I started um, Akatar, I felt so confused for the first like like fifty pages, and I already feel like I have a better like understanding. Yeah, foundation of what this world looks like and is like. So um, it's off to a good start, at least. Yeah, no, I I absolutely loved one, and then I started. I got two like right whenever it came out, and I started reading it. I'm like 400 pages in, but I genuinely have not touched that book in over a month. I Something snapped inside of me, and I was like, I genuinely don't care. <laughs> um, so I've read a lot of other books since then, but they've just been like smaller, like Kindle Unlimited books. Okay, so how many? <laughs> okay, so for all of our viewers, I don't know if you know this, but if you have Kindle in your reading insights, it tells you how many books you re- like have read that year. Oh god! In the year 2022, I have finished 78 books. Oh my god! <laughs> and that's just Kindle. Like that's just my Kindle. That's not physical books that I've read. Oh, how many do you think it's been <laughs> with the physical books? <laughs> I mean, probably. And during tax season, that's impressive. Well, I would read until like 4 a.m. and then wake up at like seven and just how go for it. How did you do that? Um. 
I started drinking a lot of coffee in the past few months. I've never been a coffee drinker, but I discovered oh a love for coffee. God. That's really funny. You and I are like on total opposite <laughs> planes. So for our listeners, <laughs> I found out I was pregnant like right before we started recording episode one. So my <laughs> recent like three months have been like not drinking coffee because it has been making me so nauseous and like sleeping more than I ever have in my entire life. So while you're <laughs> running on coffee and three hours of sleep, I'm like throwing up and getting like 12 hours. <laughs> well, I'll enjoy the coffee enough for you. You can just sleep yeah. for me. Yeah, there you so go. <laughs> it all works out. Yeah. Um, what have you been reading lately? Um, well. Or fin- watching or playing. Yeah, aside from finishing Manacled, which we will discuss in a few, I... Um, I picked up Crescent City recently, but before that, I um, finished Zodiac Academy Book 5, which honestly took me a while. It was just so long, and it just felt like it just kept going on and on and on, back and forth with the spoilers ahead. Skip ahead 10 seconds if you don't want spoilers, but it felt like the star cross thing just never ended, and it wasn't going anywhere for a while until, um, yeah, until basically the like very end where Lionel fake kidnaps Darcy. And so that was a, took me a second to finish reading. Um, but the other book, this one I DNF'd, but I picked up Priest. No. <laughs> I kind of okay. just did it. <laughs> I kind of just did it because I saw it all over my TikTok, like everywhere. And I was like, dang, this book is spicy. And so I picked it up. I was not expecting what were you expecting? <laughs> I don't know, but not to... <laughs> don't get me wrong. I not to be, like, desecrating holy oil. Okay. Hear me out. <laughs> I read some kinky shit. And I'm not even that religious, but I won't even read that book. <laughs> I literally... I did not finish it. Like, I... After, like, the second scene, I was like, this is way too much. And, like... The character build, the main character's name is Poppy, so that almost ruined the name Poppy for me because I love and will forever love that name from our beloved Blood and Ash series, but... Yeah, I mean, just so you know, I don't know, like, you can either have a daughter or a son, I don't know, but I'm going to nickname it Poppy, regardless. (laughs) Me too. I mean, Colin already shut down, (laughs) he already shut down the name Penelope slash Poppy, but that doesn't mean it's not going to be a nickname. I mean, if you have a son, I might go Nix, but I mean, if you have a girl, I'm definitely only calling your daughter Poppy. Yeah, same. And it'll just be like our little inside thing. (laughs) All right, so let's jump in um, and discuss uh, what we have in store for our episode today. So in episode one, we talked about the first half of Manacold, um, which was up to flashback 24. Um, so we're, we are going to discuss the second half of this Dramini fan fiction um, by Sen Lin Yu um, that is originally from Archive of Our Own. And then after that, which will be a very quick catch up, um, we're going to dive into our first movie episode, which we will be watching and discover discussing Pan's Labyrinth, um, the 2007 masterpiece by none other than Mr. Guillermo del Toro. So Manicold, where we left off, they, I can't remember if they were right about to or just had made the unbreakable vow for Draco to swear he will do everything in his power to help the Order. And would also not go into power after the war. Yes, not would not succeed Lord Voldemort. So... 
Um, from that point on, I mean, he, he's been training Hermione in like combat and Occlumency and some other, you know, ways to make sure that she's prepared should she ever get captured, um, by somebody, you know, a Death Eater or somebody within Lord Voldemort's ranks. But I think right after this, right, right where we stopped, like in the flashbacks is when they first hook up. Yeah, I think... So I think we stopped at either flashback 24 or 25, and then according to my notes, they get together in flashback 28. But I kind of think, I don't really remember, but I think it might have been, like, hate sex. I don't know that it was, like, a, hey, I'm in love with you. Yeah, it was, um, it was Draco is drunk. He, like, shows up to the cottage drunk in Whitecroft, and, um, she is, I think, like, fixing him maybe and then um he just like starts playing with her hair and just like being weirdly sweet um and then they kind of hook up and she suddenly has like regrets like halfway in and they panic and stop oh yeah and then it's like really awkward for the next like month or so he like doesn't see her like they don't see each other and she like talks about how like she like aches inside because she hasn't seen him yeah something like that. So then fast forward through all of that and they start hooking up like on the reg. Well, he they, they hook up on the floor of the cabin in Whitecroft mm-hmm. and that's where he's like mad at himself for falling for like falling in love with her because because at he's that like, point he's like I'm fully aware that you're using me, but it yeah. didn't stop me from falling like in love with you. Yeah. And she like can't admit it to him or to herself that like she's falling in love with him too because they're like finally found each other who are people that will like listen and understand the pain of what they're currently going through and what they have been through and um so then they start like going to hotel rooms and hooking up all over the muggle world it sounds well muggle england but um because we learned that's like where he yeah. escapes because at that point he was married to Astoria. Yes. And she was at the manor, so he stopped living at the manor and was Story, just living in random. Bitch. She got what was coming she to her. got it. Oh, I was so satisfied with her death. Um, skipping ahead a little... That was skipping ahead a little bit, but um, yeah, essentially they start hooking up and then the flashbacks end when Hermione sets off the bomb at the lab and gets captured and she's like in a cage watching all of the Weasley family be tortured and killed. So flashbacks end and then we're back in present day. And the reason that she set off all of the bombs at the lab was because Jenny had been captured and she convinced Draco to go and free Jenny. That's right. And in the process of doing that, he had exposed himself. Yeah. And so she didn't want, she knew that if the whole building didn't come down, he was going to be outed. So yeah. she took the whole building down and was then captured because she was trying to save him. Yes. And that also provided a ton of gr- uh, context behind why that guy. Yeah, that was like, whenever she. Graham or Montague or Graham Montague or whatever his name was. Why he was like such a monster towards her when he met her again. Mm-hmm. as she, When she was a surrogate. Yeah, because that was whenever <laughs> she. Um, messed him up with her poison daggers or whatever. Yeah, and she had already seen him in that that cave being tortured by Floor's sister. sister. So he wanted revenge then, 
didn't get it, and then he swore to get it again, I guess. Is but. that also the... Remember the flashback where Tonks was like, how many people did you kill today? Was that from that Yeah, trial? that I sounds so. right. That sounds right. I don't remember. But yeah, that was all the rest of the flashbacks, and at that point, we go back to present day. Yeah, where she's she finally sees like why everything's just coming together, why he's been treating her like this. But the, the flashbacks were, like, basically a two-week coma for her. Mm-hmm. So that, on the bright side, like, she still can't be, like, like, Voldemort can't use, like, Aquamancy or anything on her, which is great. But then um, I think it becomes harder for her and Draco to fake things because now they both know that each other know. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. The irony there is, is no more, so... I'm trying to remember what happens. So then, yeah, so then they wake up and things start getting better and, um, or she wakes up, I'm sorry. And then she and Draco are talking about like their plans and he's like, there is no we, like, this is what I'm going to do. I'm going to take you to where I've been hiding Jenny and James and I'm going to be exposed. Like there's no escaping my fate, which is like that I am essentially the last member of the order at this point. Jenny and James, at this point, I don't think it happened yet, but Jenny was pregnant with Harry's oh, baby. Yeah. <laughs> and Harry dies um, in the flashback. Obviously, we already know that. Yeah. But Jenny gives birth to his son because Draco got her out in time. And yep. his name is James. Yeah. J- Ron and Harry pissed me off a lot in the this oh, book. they were horrible. They were terrible, but I, in a way that, like, still stayed true to their characters. I mean, they were pretty horrible. <laughs> yeah. True. <laughs> well, like, they're pretty horrible. In general. Too, so. Yeah, they, um, they obviously didn't deserve to die the way they did, but it was also like, okay, well, we could have avoided all of this. Mm-hmm. Um, so, yeah, so then they, um, Hermione, like, dedicates herself to finding a way that they can get the dark mark off of Draco. And it seems pretty much impossible until, um, until one day, oh, Lucius comes back. Like mm-hmm. he's, he's sent back to Britain because, um, it's obvious that Draco has not had any success in tracking down this last member of the, the order who took out Dolores Umbridge and that Horcrux that she wore around her neck, the locket. So, uh, Lucius comes back and, He kills Astoria because she's being a bitch. Round of applause. One of the few things that he does right in this book, actually, that he does more than one right right, uh, choice. So, yeah, then he, like, manipulates Hermione into coming into that, like, terrible room. Yeah. And, um, yeah, and then... He can, somehow gives, like, tears of a phoenix. It's the only thing that could save Draco or yeah. something. Yeah, and then they saw his arm off and run away really, really fast. <laughs> <laughs> um, they saw his arm off. They get her manacles off. They fly away on what I presume are, like, Thestral-like courses because right. they do say that they have, like, fur and stuff. I think they look relatively normal. And then, um, and then she's reunited with Ginny and James, and it's really weird, like... You would think after five years or however long Ginny has been taken care of by Draco, she would have forgiven him in some capacity, but she's just, like, such a bitch about him. She still hates him. She, like, slaps him across the face, and, like, he's given her the best life that he can give her, like, 
for someone who, like, he genuinely doesn't care about her, but he made a promise to Hermione that he would take care of her and James, and he's given her this, like, lavish house and made sure that she has everything that she could possibly want or need in the safety of the isolation of the island that they live on, and she's still a bitch. (laughs) Yeah, and I mean, that basically brings us to the end where... Because is Ginny the one who kills Voldemort? Do I remember yes. that correctly? Yeah, she does. Yeah, Ginny like goes back, kills Voldemort. Everybody's happy except Draco and Hermione would still be ostracized yeah. from the entire world. So they continue living out their leave. days on that island all alone, just the two of them. And they had a daughter. Yeah, they their daughter. Um, what was her name? Aurora. Aurora. That's right. Yeah. So she she and James were like little little Ginny's James were like best of friends until she was like, well, I'm now that um, things with uh, Voldemort's ranks are kind of falling through. I'm going to move back to Britain and try to help like rebuild the ministry and basically like the magical world. So she takes James back and he goes to Hogwarts. And then at the very end of the book, we find I mean, we, we don't find out, but we know that um Aurora. Aurora goes to that school in New Zealand, and they're kind of reunited. And and it was almost a little, like, like they were like, tension. yeah, they were trying to like. <laughs> so I'm like, no, I don't like that. They, yeah, they should be like this, brother sister. It's like, weird. This it's too incestuous. To stop. I don't know what it is with epilogues in the Harry Potter world where we do this, I know, but like we so need to weird. stop it. Yeah, and then there was basically no resolution with Draco and Hermione after that. Like, no, there's we, like, I guess we're just supposed to like understand that they just live the rest of their lives in completely isolated. And there's like that one thing in the very end where it's the picture of Hermione, Harry and Ron. Yeah. And it's like Hermione was a non-combative member of the order or yeah. something who never saw battle. And I was like, <laughs> I know. I was like she one little like, won the whole thing slap in the face. Okay. <laughs> so, yeah. Who knows, but that was 800 pages of Manacled in 10 minutes. And what felt like like 10,000 pages of Manacled. It was a very long book. Very long. Um, it was good. Really quickly. I mean, yeah. just to end up, would you recommend reading it? How do you feel about I it? I would recommend reading it to people who are really passionate about like the Harry Potter universe, but don't mind, you know, deviating a little bit and like... The, the author of this book really does a good job of staying true to, like, the, you know, canon magic and whatnot. But um, she definitely, like, adds new elements, which I thought was really cool. Um, and I would recommend it to people who do not have a lot of, like, triggers for things like... Sexual like, assault. Sexual assault, violence, eating disorders. Um, a lot. There's like a lot. mania. <laughs> yeah. It's, it's it's a pretty dark book. So if you're not if you're looking for something that has like this like cheery happy ending, maybe not. Yeah. But um yeah, like like Lexa said, I really loved this author. Like I loved the way that she yeah. brought in the Harry Potter world. I mm-hmm. love that she um I loved her outside, um, like how she just brought different things in. Like she brought a bunch of like Greek goddesses in, yeah, and gods and all these runes and the symbolic and historical. Yeah, um, and she did a really good job with like the the science of the magic because Hermione yeah. is a healer, mm-hmm. so she talks a lot about like different potions and stuff that she uses. And I think she did a great job with that. Yeah, I would love to read other things by her, but yeah, that was. Manacled. Manacled. Next up, we have 
Pan's Labyrinth. Yeah, give us a few seconds. We're going to go and watch Pan's Labyrinth. We'll be right back. (laughs) And we're back. We're back. That was a really fast two hours. Yeah, it was really, uh, it was quite, quite a two hours for sure. It was very interesting. I had no idea what the plot was going into this. Like I didn't look up anywhere what it was even about what the premise was so I I hadn't went in completely blind I mean it was a solid like six minutes into the movie probably more than that whenever I finally realized (laughs) the reason it's called Pan's Labyrinth is because of the fawn the fawn (laughs) yeah and then like getting over the the language barrier too (laughs) we had no idea that it was in Spanish when we went into it we spent quite a long time looking for an English dub version to realize we were just gonna have to stick it out we're gonna have to stick it up yeah (laughs) which is just funny because like everything I watch I use sub like I watch subtitles on like Gilmore Girls like (laughs) (laughs) yeah and well and I really had a hard time keeping up with these subtitles but I watch most of my anime with with subtitles. subtitles on it. And some, I mean, I've seen movies that were not yeah, dubbed yet. This so is not the first. It, I don't know why. This was just harder to keep up with. I think it was because <laughs> we were trying to take notes at the same time. Yes. So anytime but. I looked down at my phone to type something out, I was like stressed or was missing like, something. What am I missing? I had to rewind it a couple times. My but. two years of high school Spanish did not yeah. prepare me for this. <laughs> it was a good movie, though. Um, a trigger warning for those who have not watched it yet. Um, there is a lot of gore, um, very like, uh, Quentin Tarantino style gore. There's like some torture scenes and stuff. So if you're squeamish, um, just a little trigger warning there. Um, and before we jump in to our full discussion about the movie, just want to say that we are not really going to like lay out the plot. So you should probably watch this before you listen if you haven't seen it already. Um, because we're going to just be talking about like the details, things we picked up on and kind of our observations, but not actually like walk through the plot. So yeah, you can get it. Um, you can rent it on Amazon for $4 Yeah, or, you know, get a free subscription to stars. Yeah. Um, Seven day free trial on stars. Amazon sponsor us. Um, (laughs) (laughs) hashtag sponsored. I guess to just go into, you know, a quick synopsis, um, Pan's Labyrinth, which translates to the Labyrinth of the Fawn. Is a 2006, I misspoke earlier when I said 2007, please excuse me, Spanish-Mexican dark fantasy film, which was written, directed, and produced by Guillermo del Toro. And it takes place in Spain during the summer of 1944, which is five years after the end of the Spanish Civil War. Which makes a lot of sense, because I was, like, (laughs) trying to figure out, I was like, is this, like, supposed to be, like, a knockoff, like, German army or something? Like, I was so confused. I don't know my, like, my world history all that well, except for, you know, what they teach you in public school, which is the very, very, very basics. (laughs) I see fascists. I just don't know which ones they are. Yeah, exactly. (laughs) So that's helpful context in hindsight. I was kind of like, okay, who is this villain and why is he a villain? I was like, I think I even said in the beginning, I was like, why do I feel like the father is going to be Hitler? Like, even <laughs> yeah. though it literally said we were in Spain, and I don't think Hitler spent any time in Spain, but whatever. I mean, I was straight up like, no, it can't be. It's the wrong time period, yeah. and it's just exactly in the middle of Hitler's That's right. time. We both so. had some key learnings. We had some yeah. key learnings. But, um, yeah, in the very beginning also, uh, I thought it was super ironic when the mom turns to Ophelia, and she's like, 
stop reading that and filling your head with that nonsense <laughs> when that's literally our whole shtick. That's what just, this podcast is. <laughs> I, you know, going into our late 20s, we're still filling our heads with nonsense. So it doesn't end even when you're a little girl and, you know, dreaming of fairy tales in the woods. But I still spend this all funny. at least three hours a day with my head in another world. Yeah, so yeah. it's fine. <laughs> even if it's not like necessarily reading or watching a movie or something that's in another world probably like in any other way day daydreaming or like i do a lot of daydreaming um like me daydreaming about my um australian biker boyfriend who's gonna come and just Mm -hmm. whisk me off my feet on his motorcycle yeah like my fave (laughs) my fave male who's gonna swoop down on his enormous wings and pick me up and fly off with me into some beautiful foreign faraway land so yeah, so anyways, we can stop daydreaming and Man, get into you're, the you're details. Married, right? <laughs> Shh, it's details, details. Irrelevant. So um, let's talk about the set and the cinematography and like kind of the the style that is infused in this because I thought it was super interesting. Yeah, I mean, it was definitely very Del Toro. I know that you said that you have you you've never seen a Del Toro I don't film, think have so. you? Um, I mean, I think that he just does a great job of you know bringing in a lot of like contrasting colors to show kind of like the vibe of the scene. Like yeah. he just does a great job of cinematography in general. Yeah. Um, I know that you had made a few comments about yeah, the it was, set. It was cool. Like the way he so seamlessly transitioned us from like <clears throat> being in this present day, like normal world, you know, where there's like, normal world problems and then all of a sudden we'd be immersed into like an entirely foreign like fantasy land you know like how easily transitioning or how easily he transitioned us from being in her like ratty old bedroom into the like pale man's like you know lair yeah lair or dungeon or whatever and how it, it felt so natural for those two like seemingly very um opposite worlds to just flow into one thought that that he did a really good job with that I feel like he also did a really good job of using color to do that because a lot of like you know the quote-unquote real world um, was mostly like natural tones and like very light and then whenever she was either working on a task or down in the well hole it wasn't the labyrinth I don't know um it was like very cold and dark dark yeah or when she was in the pale man's whatever layer it was like dark red like everything was red yeah. um yeah he did a really good job like contrasting the two until the very end when the like kind of two worlds combine and it's all just a little bit darker mm-hmm. you know um but I thought that he he did a really interesting job there yeah um one thing that I did love about this movie was the way it portrayed the fairies I love that they had like the leafy yeah they wings. were like they're very whimsical yeah, very woodlandy. Which is, they're very whimsical, but at the same time, very dark. Yeah. Like he did a good job of marrying the two yeah. together. I think, um, I think it was just interesting that it, it that darkness was a, an element of it because I think a lot of people think fairies, when we're right. not talking about like, you know, like fae books or whatever, you think fairies and you think like Tinkerbells mm-hmm. and fairies are like really, I think, more meant to be like mischievous kind of little... Yeah. Little shits. <laughs> like me. <laughs> Not your fern gully type fairies. Yeah. But. <laughs> um, 
another thing I thought that was interesting about the cinematography was that while there there was CGI, but a lot of the effects were mostly a combination of complex makeup and animatronics. Um, I read where the um, fawn, the actor who would play him, I don't remember his name, but he would spend on average about five hours a day sitting in the makeup chair um, to get his makeup applied for the fawn, and most of that was like a latex foam. Oh my god, that would make me... I would probably just feel like I had ants crawling all over my body if yeah. I had to sit still for five hours. And, like, I also read where, like, his eyes were remote controlled by, like, somebody on set who oh. was, like, actively, like, opening and closing his eyes for him. How did he see <laughs> in all that makeup? I don't. <laughs> That's well, crazy. I'm pretty, I could be wrong, but I'm pretty sure the same actor who played um, the fawn also played the pale man. Oh. And whenever he was the pale man, he... Looked like he used the nostrils as eye, as holes. eye holes. That makes sense. Yeah. Um, but I also, that same guy, whenever Del Toro was like, you know, giving him direction, he told him that he wanted to go rock star, but like a glamorous rock star and told him to go, you know, less David Bowie and more Mick Jagger. <laughs> so he was like, make it a monster, but also but like, give, give Mick some, Jagger. Give him some swag. <laughs> give him some Jagger, which That's I just so thought was cool. hilarious. Yeah, and I think he did a really good job of that. Yeah. I think, um, like, going back to the Pale Man, too, I think you, you mentioned something about his, like, the inspiration behind him being... Yeah, so apparently there was, like, this point in time where Del Toro lost, like, a lot of weight at one time, <laughs> and his skin started to sag, and, like, that was his inspiration had, like, behind the look. Arms. Yeah, of the well, pale Actually, man. that makes sense, too, because he had that, like, the whole feast in front of him, yeah, you know? And but he he's, wasn't like, still, it. like, starving. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, hopefully Del Toro's not eating children to, like, satiate himself, but... <laughs> I mean, the success of his movies, one might think that he was a part of the Illuminati, so... Yeah, true. Who knows? True. Who knows? <laughs> um, that was, like, such an interesting scene to me. Like, I wish we... I could, like, go back. I mean, I guess I can technically go back and, like, take another look at the drawings or paintings on the walls of the pale man's, you know, like, lair or whatever. Because mm-hmm. it was, like, him killing... Feasting on small children. Yeah, but, like, in a setting that wasn't the one that he was in. So I wonder what the meaning behind his current setting was, other than maybe that... Um, Do you think it's some sort of, like... What's the word I'm looking for here? Look in my mind. Not heaven, not hell. Purgatory. purgatory? <laughs> yeah, maybe it is a purgatory. Which would make sense, like, because... tempted by all this food, but it doesn't... It's not, like, the food that he wants kind of thing. Yeah. That's interesting. It could be. Like, he was, like, damned to spend eternity there. Yeah, and, I mean, that would check out because I have um, seen online. I did a lot of online perusing while watching the movie, which probably wasn't my best idea. No, I feel I was like you kept up really well subtitles for, also for all the, subtitles. like, mini research you did in between. I was like, um, wait, what? And rewinding it every, like, five <laughs> minutes. Every time I glance down and take a note. <laughs> but a lot of people were saying that the Pale Man could... Um, be alluding to the Catholic Church because Del Toro does a lot of he does that a lot in a lot of his films. Oh, really? And kind of, yeah. Which I mean, you can take from that what you will. Yeah. With the pale man <laughs> eating the small children. But there is a tweet from Guillermo Del Toro that I'm looking at right now that says that his picture of the pale man and it says the pale man represents all institutional evil feeding on the helpless. It's not accidental that he is. A, pale, B, a man. 
Um, another interesting thing about the Pale Man were his eyes for hands. Yes. That's like a really popular theme in anime. A lot of antagonists have that, um, that kind of... Yeah, so um, the Pale Man's eyes on his hands, it's a feature that is shared by the Japanese mythological monster, which is the Tonome, mm. which basically means eyes for hands. Um, it's very That's descriptive. So, yeah, yeah, really? <laughs> yeah, no, there is a name for it. It's a mythical it's monster. Like a, yeah, I wonder what it, it's like shtick is. I know, it's really interesting that in most anime, it is portrayed it's, as like an antagonist. Yeah. So, I mean, I didn't do enough research to kind of dig into that. Yeah. I just... It's kind of like I've seen this. No, I'm, I'm curious. I want to keep like, keep looking now. Like in Demon Slayer, one of the characters' hands pop off, and they like are like they they walk around by themselves with an eye right. to like guide them. So I'm curious to know if there's like like a theme about like this. What 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 did you say is it's called? Tenome. Tenome. I could be pronouncing that completely that looks right. wrong. Tenome. But... Yeah. If you hear this and want to correct us, please do. We'll. Send it to we'll our email. We'll in episode three. <clears throat> we don't have an email. We don't have an email like yet. We'll get there. <laughs> DM me on the low and scream at me. It's fine. Yeah, you can find us on Instagram. I'm not even going to give you our last name. So you can just <laughs> find us with your couch looping skills. Um, so an, another interesting thing you brought up was that it felt very Alice in Wonderlandy. Yes, I stick by that. There were a ton of scenes where I was just like, this is a lot darker and... I don't even, it was just a darker Alice in Wonderland, but not even really darker because Alice in Wonderland is very dark. Not the Disney version, obviously, yeah. but the real, the it's OG. very dark, but it's just like dark and twisty, kind of like Christina and Meredith. Yeah. And it um, has the same theme of like an innocent, yeah, an innocent reality. Like, yeah. Kind of like blending between two worlds. Yeah. Yeah. Which is really interesting. Um, um, yeah, I definitely pulled on a lot of Alice in Wonderland vibes, one could say. But I think that it was also really interesting that in my mind, I think he pulled in some other fairy tales as well. Yeah. Um, a few that kind of stuck out to me were the ticking of the clock for the captain. Captain Hook Captain vibes. Hook, yeah. yeah definitely Captain sure. Hook vibes. I mean, it almost drove him, it was like driving him crazy mm-hmm. to the point where like, I mean, that room he was always in, his room, it was literally like, like a clock. Yeah, like it had all the cogs and like mechanisms yeah. of the clock in it. Yeah, so I loved that. Which, and you know, you could also, like, the fairies, Tinkerbell, also yeah. bring that in. Yeah. With um, Peter it's Pan. It's like a little sprite guide kind of thing. Yeah. <clears throat> um, and then also, you know, the rebels hiding in the forest, hunting down yeah. the fascist army. You could take that as, I don't even know what they would be called. Maybe, yeah. like, the, the people in Little Red Riding Hood. Yeah, like the, the, the people, townsmen Yeah, or whatever, hunting the down huntsmen. the big bad wolf. Yeah. Or... Uh, you could also see them as, like, the Lost Boys of Peter Pan. Yeah, that thought did cross my mind, because at one point, one of them was, like, wearing a bandana around his neck, yeah. and I was like... You're like, pretty sure one of those Lost <laughs> Boys has that on. I've seen this movie a time or two. Yeah, which makes sense, because, like, part of, and we'll, we'll get into this in a few minutes, but, like, part of the, like, debate around the movie, even though I really didn't know much about it going into it, I know that the debate is about whether it's real or not, mm-hmm. and part of, like, Neverland is that it's only accessible by children yes. and a lot of the characters like couldn't see the fawn in this movie for example yeah but I mean I guess yeah I don't know I, I, I found that to be a really interesting like um kind of maybe nod to 
uh, Peter Pan? Like, yeah. is it that he's supposed to kind of represent somebody like Captain Hook, too? I don't know. Maybe. I mean, I think he just did, Del Toro did an amazing job of, you know, bringing in all these whimsical fairy tales we're all so used to and giving them this dark and twisty kind of twist. Yeah. Um, helping them mold kind of, you know, the real world and yeah Ophelia's fairy tale world together. one of the ones that I'm kind of hung up on like trying to make a connection to is the frog like she feeds it those stones and it like barfs up you know wh- whatever that blurb was but I'm trying to think of like what that might be alluding to um, you know I know that he took I read this where he took um influence for the frog from the maze I don't know if that's, like, a... I've never seen that or I've heard of it. I've never seen it, yeah. But that was, like, where his um, influence for the frog came from. Oh. was the maze. Okay. I don't know if that's that. just, like, the appearance of it or, like, the story behind it. I don't know. Yeah, because I, I was, like... I skimmed over that because I didn't really care about the frog part. Yeah, at first, <laughs> like, when, when, you know, a little girl goes into a tree, giant frog, I'm thinking, oh, maybe a little princess and the frog type situation. Oh, yeah. But that was not the case. The frog no. just, like... Threw up a giant yellow blob, and then it's like yeah, skin sack that? just wrinkled to the floor. I was getting major Jabba vibes. Yeah, major Jabba major vibes. Jabba. I thought for sure that yellow thing that she pulled the key out of was going to Attacker. come alive. Yeah, for sure. It was super creepy. Like a creepy. sentient creature. Yeah. Oh, no. You know what we need to talk about was... Oh, my conspiracy. Yeah. Oh, wait, I had another little fun fact I wanted to throw out oh, first. hit me. So, during the torture scene, there was a priest, and I guess he um, just, like, gave a little monologue where he said, Remember, my sons, you should confess what you know because God doesn't care what happens to your bodies. He already saved your soul. And that is an actual direct quote from a priest who offered communion to political prisoners during the Spanish Civil War. Jeez, that's... First of all, that's, like, dark. really really dark. Yeah, but it's also super intelligent to, like, tie the two in, you know? Yeah, more real-world yeah. fantasy. Yeah, good writing. Fantastic writing. Yeah. All right, let's hear your, your theory. Okay, here is my theory that I spent the entire last 10, 15, 20 minutes trying to figure out how to put into words. Um... So basically, we're getting these two parallel stories with Ophelia and Mercedes, in my opinion. Um, You know, one is in the real world, Mercedes. One is in this fantasy realm, Ophelia. Um, And both are undergoing these trials from their own personal monster. You know, with Ophelia, you have the fawn. And with Mercedes, some could say that the captain is her monster. I mean, he even refers to himself as a monster. She refers to him as a monster at one point. Um... The task, in my opinion, so you have this first task, um, you have this key that Ophelia gets from the toad, and at this, about like five minutes later, Mercedes has a key um, that she's giving to the captain. It somehow comes back later whenever the train blows up that like that key was used. Yeah. I was kind of confused by that, but I could have just not been paying close attention. It, uh, the key was used, so she made a copy of the key to the um, like store warehouse or whatever where they kept all their like food and stuff and they also kept like gunpowder and like grenades and stuff in there got it and she gave the second key to um her brother her brother okay so that they could steal all of those supplies and blow up their you know their trains and cars and whatnot Mm -hmm. so we have that first task you know with the key for both of them the second task involved the dagger which ophelia gets from the pale man 
and Mercedes, you know, slips into her apron and later uses to stab the captain. Mm-hmm. Um, and then the third task, which I think is the most important to show the parallel, is the blood, um, which Ophelia refuses to spill her bro- her brother's blood. And instead, she's, she doesn't really choose this, but she spills her own in order to protect him. And, you know, two seconds later, you have Mercedes who takes the son from the captain and says that he'll never know his name in order to protect him as well. So they're both choosing to protect this innocent life by, I mean, Mercedes also like could have died doing yeah. that too. Like, they both um, kind of sacrifice themselves and, for this kid. Yeah, and even more to that point, Mercedes kind of does that when she's escaping, um, like, captivity from, you know, the captain has her, like, tied up earlier, mm-hmm. and she's like, don't harm the girl. Yeah. Like, she knows that she could be killed right then and there, but, like, she cares more about making sure that nothing happens to Ophelia. Protecting an innocent. Yeah. Yeah. No, that's such an interesting parallel, because I did not pick up on that at all. Well, you put, <laughs> I may, I you may picked have, up on like, another parallel too between them i can't remember i I don't know you made a comment i can't remember Um, back to me yeah they uh oh it'll come to me but i probably probably would have picked it up if i had like pondered on it a little bit more but i find that so interesting because too busy trying to read the subtitles yeah i was i was too busy trying to read the (laughs) subtitles and trying to figure out if um mercedes was the mom or not (laughs) You're like, dark hair, sunken face, checks out. It's yeah. the mom. <laughs> Definitely the mom. They're both the mom. No, um, yeah, I thought it was, I thought that that was a really good observation, and I'm sure it was very purposeful that he did that. Yeah. But um, really cool to see, like, how seamlessly those two plot lines, like, I mean, they, they interacted with each other. Those plot lines were intertwined. Yeah. And I they, mean, definitely. I think that the um, those two narratives do kind of, intertwine and they do repeat like the same patterns yeah. almost to where you know it shows that by sticking to kind of their gut and doing what their gut's telling them instead of you know just blindly following this what could be corrupt authority figure um they technically both do exactly what they're supposed to do yeah for, like they do what they're told what their monsters are instructing them yeah to do. they just kind of do it their own way yeah. which gets them both in trouble at one point that was oh, your that was, was your parallel the second yeah. chance. They they both got a like shot at redemption. Like when um when the captain is telling Ophelia, like or not Ophelia, Mercedes, basically that he found out that she gave the spare key to um, you know, the whatever you want to call them, the like the brigands. I don't think they're brigands, but like the you know, wood people. Her brother <laughs> and his friends. The woodland creatures. Yeah. <laughs> that he's he's saying like Go get, you know, he's basically giving her an opportunity to be like, I'm not going to run away. I'm not going to do anything irrational. I'm going to, like, stay here like a good little girl. And she still chooses to run away. But similarly, the fawn gives Ophelia another shot at her, um, at her, like, tasks. And she does the same thing that she's always done, which is, like, do it her own way kind of thing. And I think that it's the doing it their own way instead of, you know, just following strict um, instructions is what kind of helps both of them kind of hold on to their, not innocence, but more like their morality. And, yeah. You know, their... Their, like, conviction to, yeah. to why they're doing what they're doing. Yeah. Yeah. That was a really good, really good um, pick up on that. Thank you. Because I missed it. <laughs> I... Yeah. All right, well, then we, we come to the final question. Was it, it all real? 
I mean, I can see it both ways. I can see it 100% being real, and I can see it being just a way for her to escape her reality. Yeah. Um, I'm of the belief that it was real. There are definitely clues throughout that would make it Yeah, like the mandrake. Like, the fact that other people can, like, pick... First of all, where did she get the mandrake from? You know, if if not from the fawn, she... Where to come from? (laughs) And then... (laughs) The fact that when she does place it under her mom's bed, her mom gets better. And then when it's discovered, they both the mom and the captain hold it. So it's like... Right. It's a tangible it's thing. It's a tangible thing. It's obviously real and it's like present. But um, I think that's one of the really interesting proof points to to the, the it's real side. Mm-hmm. Um, another thing is the flower at the end on the tree. Yes. The, fi- the fig tree starts... Um, blooming. blooming again um, after the frog has been defeated. Right. So that's also like indicative of, of it being real. And another thing like, well, I guess this doesn't necessarily indicate whether it's real or not, but something that I was hung up on is like, where did this labyrinth and like the well kind of thing, like where did this come from? And like, how come nobody else near the, like the mill camp, Thought that this was, like, nobody made comments about it or anything. There's this, like, super ominous, creepy maze well, right there. Mercedes stops her from going in it at the beginning. She does. Yeah, that's a good point. I think that we were just kind of still reeling, reeling from the them. fact that we <laughs> were... all Spanish. We were trying My to compose ourselves. locked on them. We missed, we missed the prologue. <laughs> yeah, that's all right. That's all right. We'll rewatch it. Because um, they could have mentioned why, like, how that got there, too, yeah. in the beginning. I can't remember. One of the points I think that could be used to say that it was not real is whenever the fairy first appears, it's a huge coincidence that it appears exactly how her fairies in her book look. Yeah. Like, what are the odds that it looks exactly the same? And then when she goes down and meets the fawn for the first time... And there are other fairies there that look exactly the same. Mm-hmm. Even though, like, she's never seen those fairies before. They've never seen her fairy drawing before. Right. So, like, how would they no. emulate that same exact image? And another emulating of images could be whenever she sees the stone before she even gets to the mill. Mm-hmm. It has the image of the fawn on it. So she wouldn't have to stretch her imagination too far to come to up with that like, creature. To just, like, create a whole creature in itself based off of that image. That's yeah. a good point. Um, I feel like there was more. Yeah, I, I think, mean nobody I mean, I, could see the fawn but her. Yeah, nobody could see the fawn. Um, again, that's kind of like how we mentioned that it's like one of those Neverland things. Like, right? Neverland only exists for children. So does the fawn only exist for children too? Or was it just choosing not to make itself seen present? Yeah. You know, for other people, like maybe only those of you know her bloodline or whatever could see it. You mm-hmm. know. But I'm curious, like, if she had handed over the baby, like, would it have been able to hold the baby? Like, can it interact? If it wasn't real, would it have been able to interact with things that were not part of, you know, that weren't just Ophelia? Yeah. So, I don't know. I guess we'll never know. We'll never know. Um, I, I hope it's real because she, her death was really tragic like I was hoping, for... and also very anticlimactic. Yeah, very anticlimactic. Like, first of all, how did the captain keep up with her, drunk and poisoned, and 
like having lost so much blood. He's just built different. Yeah. <laughs> he's a freaking tank. He's like finding his way through an entire uh, maze while he's like half wasted, half poisoned. <laughs> And still Stab makes it over there. wounds all over his body. Yeah, really. And can still carry an infant and shoot a little girl at the same time. Like I will say all the gunshots were very fake. Oh, God. That did drive me crazy. Well, like, for as gory as the movie was, gore did not come from the gunshots ever. I know. Like, the gunshots They were, like, taking headshots Where's left the and right. And there was no brain Where's matter brain anywhere. Matter? <laughs> yeah, they were too clean. Sorry, too clean. Yeah. What was not clean was him bashing that man's face in with the bottle at the beginning. Yeah, that, that was, was not clean. Gruesome, like just straight jabbing this guy with in the face until he just collapsed. That was disgusting. Yeah, that was a like immediately when I was like, I, at first I was kind of like, oh, this guy maybe he's just like rough around the edges, and then that scene happened, and I was like, no, nope. he is evil. <laughs> <laughs> he is a nasty man. <laughs> yeah. So. That was Pan's Labyrinth. What do you think? I really liked it. I thought it was great, and I kind of want to watch it again to like pick up on things that I may have missed the first time. Yeah, I think that's very common. Yeah, like the first not only this film but a lot of Del Toro films. Yeah, the the intro scene was her, you know, laying down with the blood spilling out of her her nose or her mouth or whatever, mm-hmm. but in reverse. So I'm yeah. curious to like rewatch it with a, like a new perspective, but. Yeah. Um, what do you What do you think? I mean, I think there's a reason it's considered one of the greatest fantasy films of all time. Oh uh, yeah, it was good. Very obvious. It was really good. Ten out of ten. Yeah. Five stars. Shout out to my buddy Carson for the suggestion. Thanks, Carson. I don't know you, but thank you. <laughs> yeah, and um, I'm pretty sure my buddy Constantine said that this is his favorite movie. So. Oh, it's Constantine. I finally watched it after, you know, like five years. We're sure <laughs> you telling me that both of you are listening right now. So. Yeah, somewhere <laughs> distant. So that wraps our episode on Pan's Labyrinth. We hope you guys enjoyed it, and we appreciate you tuning back in for episode two of What the Fantasy. In episode three, we are going to be diving into the amazing world of Sarah J. Moss, and we'll be reviewing Crescent City, House of Earth and Blood. So. Get your read on, get ready for episode three so you can follow along with us, and thanks for tuning in. And remember, if you enjoyed what you just heard, feel free to leave us a stellar five-star rating or a splendid review on your preferred podcasting platform. So, it's been fun, and remember, if you're gonna make a monster, make a Jagger. Okay, bye!